G'day, I'm Mark Pesci, and welcome to the News in Review episode of This Week in Startups Australia. Today, we'll be joined by a panel of experts discussing the state of the startup nation with big changes in how share options work, big inflows in venture capital, and big markets opening up. There's a lot here to talk about. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Fishburners, Australia's largest startup space, with 90 startups working from one large building in Ultimo, including this recording studio. Fishburners is a non-profit dedicated to supporting entrepreneurs and has a pitching competition open to the public every Friday afternoon at 4.30. Find out more at fishburners.org. Welcome to the News and Review episode of This Week in Startups Australia. Let me begin by introducing our panelists. First, Paul Wallbank. Paul's a journalist, broadcaster, and speaker on business and technology who blogs at paulwallbank.com. Thank you very much, Mark. Phil Morrill, who's the CEO of Pollinizer, Australia's first tech startup incubator and a legend. It's a pleasure to be here. In our first segment, we're joined by Raina Lee Shannon. Raina is the attorney who drafted the employee share scheme submission to the Australian government inquiry for Startup Australia. Now, disclosure here, I know Raina because she served as corporate counsel for my own startup, Moore's Cloud. Raina, welcome to This Week in Startups Australia. Thank you, Mark. So, Raina, could you just tell us about the way things are right now in 2014 with employee share options? Sure. Um, currently, we're existing under the 2009 regime legislation that was introduced by the Labor government. That legislation was an amendment to the previous legislation. Now, under the original pre-2009 employee share scheme legislation, when an option was issued to an employee, there was no tax payable at the time of issue of the option, but tax was payable at the time of exercise of the option. Okay, so you could give me share options, and when I exercise those, that's when I would incur the tax penalty. Yes, and it would be income tax on the value of the option. So what happened in 2009 was when the legislation provided that when the option was issued, that was when the taxing point occurred, and that created enormous difficulties for companies because it meant that the employees were immediately liable for tax at the time they were given the option. So the incentive for the employee was neg was made nugatory. So uh, um, do we know any reason about why this insanity happened back in 2009? Was there any reason for it? Um, two reasons, I think. I've, at the time, politically, there was a lot of stuff about large amounts of money being paid to executives and that kind of thing. And there was also concern about um, using various mechanisms to get around tax rules in order to pay people vast sums of money. So rather than look at it in a surgical way, the government of the day just imposed this blanket rule, okay. which shut down all forms of incentive. So they were closing some loopholes, but they actually overshot the mark. Yes. Well, all right. If I could just duck in with a question there too. Sure. It's, uh, was there any consultation with industry before the uh, the then government brought in these changes? In 2009, mm. um, if there was, it was probably fairly brief. I mean, at the time, there was reports flying around left, right and centre and consultations taking place, and there was quite often short lead-up times for consultation. But they would have had to have had some form of consultation. But I wasn't certainly involved in anything at that stage. Okay, so what recommendations did Startup Australia make 
to the government about how this uh, employee share option sh- regime should change? Well, Startup Australia responded, as did a lot of other submissions, to the discussion paper that was issued by the government. And it was clear in that discussion paper that the government didn't want to open the floodgates. And so the response of Startup Australia had to take into consideration that there'd have to be some kind of boundary around the new scheme as distinct from just saying, okay, well, anybody can get given shares in any amount to any company and the tax will only be payable by anyone at the point when they sell the shares, which is largely the situation in America, Mm. be that as it may. To draw a ring around the provisions, what was suggested by Startup Australia in its submission was there would be a definition of an eligible company, which would be the startup type entity, and that would have a certain amount of capital. I think our submission said $20 million would be the up to $20 million for the capital of the company, right. and, and it would have to be a company that hadn't existed for too long. Mm-hmm. and that the shares would maybe have to be owned for a certain period of time before they would be. So, so Phil, let me just ask you, so $20 million and a few years old, is that an appropriate boundary setting for a company to be issuing those kinds of share options, or is that too narrow or is it too broad? No, I think it's uh, it's good, and we're pretty happy with what the what the definitions are. The, the, the target needs to be the time in the life of a startup when it's so in, uncertain and and, it, and the business itself is is not sort of sustainably proven that there needs to be ways of uh, incentivizing the employees to join at a point where it's incredibly risky. So certainly under $20 million, that's, you know, that's very good. Presumably by the time there's $20 million worth of capital, the business is working as a business and you can just pay people the right amount of money to come and work for you. Well, the good news is that although the submission made by Startup Australia was $20 million, they came back with $50 million. Ah. I think they just decided on an average of what all the submissions were because there were other submissions for $100 million and so on. So Even better. Yeah, so it's $50 million. Okay, so you made the submission and the government came back, what, about three weeks ago, four weeks ago now? October, mid-October. Yeah, so about yeah. Four, four, four or five weeks ago now. And what, have the, what has the government said? Well, it's actually gone a long way towards helping the startup industry, I have to say. It's been it's been a really good response. Now they have a specific category for startups, which is, as we discussed, the 50 million limit, no older than 10 years, mm-hmm. and the shares or options have to be held for a minimum of three years before divestiture. Oh, so, so when I give someone options, they have to hold on to them, so they can't just turn them over in a year. No, they, that's a disincentive against just handing out money if you like so so does that even include if the if the shares float you know if there's a sudden share float in there only for unlisted companies okay but if i get the options in an unlisted company and then there's a share float am i still bound by that three-year limit well this is one of the areas that we don't know because there's no detail around that it could be that that's treated as a um taxation point Mm -hmm. so if the company floats the most unfortunate thing would be if the the regulations or the final legislation said, oh, if the company converts to listed, that's a taxation point. Suddenly all of the tax becomes due. That would be a disaster, I think. It's definitely one of the things that needs to be handled. I mean, my my personal story uh, of a successful exit happened in less than a year, and I went from zero to 40 million in less than a year. So I would like to know that my options are actually going to be looked after in that situation. Yes, I would imagine that if there's sufficient communication between government and industry, it would be pretty clear that you would have to maintain that share option scheme through 
a listing. So now, are, are we talking about regulatory changes or are we talking about legislative changes? In a way, both. The legislative changes are going to occur because there has to be changes to the Income Tax Assessment Act. Mm -hmm. There's going to be, in effect, regulatory changes around the definition of a company that's eligible to issue those shares. So there'll be amendments to the corporation's legislation. And then, presumably, there'll be regulations for the administration of that that go through the ATO and also through ASIC. So it's quite comprehensive. So I guess then the question is, is there the political consensus around these changes? I mean, if it's actually going to take legislative change, and given the structure of the Australian Senate right now, which is turning into a three-ring circus, is it clear that these changes, as mooted in any form, are actually going to make their way through? Um, look, I'm not a political commentator, but um, I would have thought that for the... Labor government, this is not really something they need to hang on to. Mm -hmm. um, it was a response at a given time. It's not really relevant now. Um, and also, I would have thought that the independents would back it completely because it's supporting small business. And everyone's promising this for July of 2015, so the next fiscal year. That's correct, correct yes. Have we seen any legislation on this? No, there's no draft legislation. There's the report, 132-page report generally about the new policies of the government, and there is a five-page fact sheet about the new employee share schemes. And one of the other things in the report that's probably not entirely relevant to the discussion about employee share schemes, but they're also looking at introducing exemptions for raising capital under things like Kickstarter and that kind of thing. What do, you, what do you think uh, a founder should do in terms of offering shares or options between now and July? Should we, should we, should we wait or should we make do with uh, these crazy loan schemes in the meantime? It depends how capitalised you are and how urgent things are. If you've got enough money and you can afford to shed, set up an employee share scheme under the current arrangement, which is not cheap because you've got particular documentation that requires specialist drafting, um, you may have no choice but have to go now um, but if you can wait I'd wait it's going to be a lot cheaper it's going to be a lot easier it's going to be much nicer for the employee so so Phil how do you think this is going to change the way that Polonizer works with its incubator companies to get talent is there going to be a change immediately do you do you see this really changing the startup landscape overall it's going to make a it's going to have a huge positive impact when it happens Right now, when we found companies, it's less of a problem because the company is officially worth zero. So we can easily give shares for a dollar and you can pay tax on them. That's not a problem. But given the space that we're in, we're, we're in the business of making multi-million dollar companies as fast as possible. And of course, when you hire the third employee in month eight and you've just raised some angel capital at maybe a million dollar valuation and you want to give someone... 8% of the company, that's pretty expensive for the person you're giving that 8% to. And actually, they're highly demotivated to come and work for you under the, the current scheme because we're already not paying them enough. Uh, and there's no motivation to take the shares at that stage. So when we can, when we can do this new option scheme, we'll be able to start doing that again. So it sounds like then the, the the faster that the government can get to clarity on the legislation and get it through parliament, businesses will be able to start planning for this. You'll be able to start planning your share offerings. You'll be able to start planning your recruiting around this. Yeah, I mean, it, that, that, that timing just sort of seems really important. I mean, I, I think 
it it sounds so much better uh, if, let's say, when it happens in, uh, in July and be optimistic about it, that it seems not worth uh, probably $12,000 plus and all the headache and all the demotivating that goes on to doing the hack, you know, that's in between. If there was a way of saying, look, we're going to, we're going to do we're going to do a deal with you on shares i'm going to do that in july uh, that would be so much better the other thing that's good about the proposal that they've made is that they're suggesting that the government will liaise with industry about preparing standardized employee share scheme documentation so rather than going to a big end of town law firm and getting something um, drafted by them hopefully it will be something that's a, a standardized document settled between government and industry that you can just download off the internet. And it's then inexpensive for a startup to be able to offer. Well, yes, except for one of the devils in the detail, which is that you still have to get a valuation of the shares or the options at the time that they're issued so that there's a base price that can be calculated at the time of disposal for the capital gains tax mm. that's going to be payable. So that is a not inexpensive, not unadministratively difficult process for a lot of companies getting evaluation done. They have suggested in the report that they're going to upgrade these things, which are called safe harbour valuation tables. Still, the process of using those tables still requires expertise and therefore expenditure. Reina, I think we're going to invite you back once this legislation has actually made its way through Parliament so you can actually tell us how things work. But for the moment, thank you very much for coming and joining us on This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. I have to say that Fishburners is one of the most interesting places that I've ever worked with the startup community because it's got people who are doing every possible type of startup, so many people with so many different skills, so many different competencies. There's always someone around to ask if you have a problem. There's always some help to get. There's always a way that you can give someone else help. And so it's a great place to learn to be an entrepreneur. Find out more about Fishburners at fishburners.org. Welcome back to This Week in Startups Australia. So, Paul, you've been watching what's going on in what we call the Fool's Friends and Family segment of startup funding. Yeah, this is interesting at the moment. Um, what's happened with all of the uh, big um, big acquisitions that we've seen, particularly Facebook um, with uh, their acquisition sprees, that uh, all of a sudden um, families are saying to their uh, geeky young uh, relative, hey, we're in interested in, um, uh, in investing in that startup that you've been boring us about at barbecues for the last 18 months. All right. So is that then leading to a lot more of that friends and family angel level funding or not mm. even angel level, pre-angel level funding? Is that now going on at a, a higher level than it has before? I wouldn't say a high. Well, in terms of higher level, I'd say it's a, a higher level of activity, um, whether it's going on at a high level of the business is another story. A lot of this, um, a lot of this money, to be honest, I would uh, say is uh, less sophisticated money. So these guys are getting in there um, hoping that they've got the next WhatsApp or uh, Instagram and so on, and uh, probably not fully aware of the uh, risk profile that they're getting involved in on this. I mean, the good news is that there's 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 regulations that stop startups rorting that, of course, mm. and that, and and you there's only so many non-sophisticated. Tw the, what's the 2012 rule, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. So, but, for for the listeners who aren't familiar with that, that you can have 20 unsophisticated investors in any 12-month period on your share register. That's right. right. And uh, but I agree with your concern, Paul, and I think it's. Um, it's going to become more important as we get into the sort of crowdfunding universe that seems to be in our future where it's going to be much more likely that 
uh, mums and dads are going to be investing in a in a brand new startup uh, in the same way that they're investing in a Telstra share today, and that's why we need to be careful. Well, now, where is the uh, where is the law around this kind of crowd investing in Australia? Because we know that there was a massive change to the regulations for the SEC in America to allow this. Do we have anything similar to that in Australia to allow it? Not at this stage, and in fact, you just can't do it in Australia. I mean, we're still bound by the the, the 2012 rule, which sort of stops the crowdfunding happening. And uh, my understanding is it's under review, uh, but I'm not sure where that's going. But I think, I think what we need to understand as an industry is that angel investing as an asset class is an art form in its own right and can't be done in the same way that we might invest in Telstra towards dividends and things like that. It's highly risky. Um, it needs uh, needs you to pay a lot more attention to the market. That's what makes it a little bit more interesting as well. So, so angel investors, even if you're a, a mom and dad investing very, very early on, I think need to pay attention to their investment in a way that they, they haven't done in the past. Did, Paul, do, do we think that those angels investors know anything about how to do that? Are they ever going to learn? Can they learn? Well, this is where um, the opportunity, I think, lies for a lot of these startups is that if you get the right angel investors on board, then uh, you can be getting some very, very good talent coming in. And that's that's the what I think is the more uh, sustainable end of this, the, the more sophisticated, the, the people that have been involved in their own startups or executives that are looking at uh, moving out of you know, law, accounting, big corp, whatever it is looking at doing something more interesting. Few bankers coming in. We saw this um, probably about seven or eight years ago before the GFC. There were quite a few bankers uh, getting involved in startups, and that's beginning to pick up again now that that risk appetite's come back, along with the bonuses in the bank sector, I guess. Yeah, I mean, when it gets really interesting, I mean, if you, if you think of uh, one of our businesses, for example, Lawpath, um, it would be very interesting to imagine a world where hundreds of lawyers could become investors in that business and effectively uh, participate in its growth, just uh, actually just by being customers at the same time as being lawyers. And there's probably a lot of startups that are analogous in that sense. So you, you just you help by being a customer. Mm. So it changes the relationship between customer and investor in a fundamental way. It basically makes them two halves of the same coin. I think so. And I think that's that's a general trend that we're seeing anyway. There's a, there's a fabulous book called Bing, Big Bang Disruption, which basically suggests that early adopters these days uh, in the life cycle are also participating in the creation of what the product is. Twitter. Right. right. You don't have to go any further than that. In Twitter, all of the people who tweeted were the people who created what Twitter is. So. That's right. Yeah. So, so I think I think that's super interesting that consumers can participate in creating the solutions in their world that they want to see brought to life by becoming customers, by becoming investors, and also by participating in design of the product. So in a few years, will we see startups launching that essentially combine their crowd investing and customer acquisition into a single task? That they're, they're, they're essentially the same task. Oh, well, I think we're already seeing them, aren't we? We're seeing, you know, I mean, Kickstarter being the, the model right. for that. But, you know, now Dean McAvoy is doing it with restaurants as well by actually crowdfunding the first three months' worth of covers at the tables to, determined, uh, to, to, to determine which concepts get to be trialed. So it's, it's happening already. So then, Paul, what's the fate for the fool's friends and family investors? Are they just doomed to lose their money? Oh, no, I think uh, they're always 
always going to be around and this is uh, probably the upside of our, um, our fascination with property our obsession with property is that uh, there's lots of equity kicking around and uh, so as a consequence uh, you can tap your father-in-law or your uh, or your uncle or whatever to uh, release 50 grand of that property and put it in so th- th- these are always going to be around I mean this is uh, part of it as I say though I think uh, the level of sophistication of some of these folk is probably not quite as great as we'd like and, and it is it is it's actually the polar opposite to real estate isn't it and that's the mm. worry because when I hear you say it that way that of course is this sort of default investment asset class of choice for this same group of people yes. and well, in it, general in real estate goes up and in general yeah. startups fail <laughs> Yeah. Mm. yeah, yeah, which of course raises an interesting thing: that what happens if the property market does turn here? Do we right. see the startups take off, or do <laughs> we see the um, a recession uh, take everybody with it? So this actually comes up. So now, Phil, you um, wanted to share with us some information about the fact that we've just has seen the highest level of VC funding in Australian startups in history, right? Yeah, so we've just seen the AVCAL report for the year, and that's the association that sort of oversights uh, venture capitalists here in Australia. And there's actually been $400 million more invested in the in this year than the prior year uh, so this is a good sign generally we no. are seeing a lot more why such a big jump well um that well there are that startups are growing more sustainably uh, than they ever have before we're getting a lot more global investment coming here into australia this particular jump though i think um isn't as good as it sounds because we're seeing that uh, i think there was about 250 million of that was the campaign monitor Investment. So one single investment in a very uh, mature startup uh, from a US-based uh, venture capital firm. Um, so not 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 really uh, the Australian ecosystem being supported there. Um, but the other trend that I thought was super interesting and reflective of what I'm seeing is that a lot of this extra venture capital money, uh, so the you know the rest of that 400 million, is actually coming from corporate venture capitalists, so Telstra Ventures and the like. Mm. And this is a trend that I'm absolutely seeing, which I think is very positive for the Australian funding ecosystem because there is an argument to say that that private venture capital as has been tried so many times in the past is actually always going to struggle because of the size of our market here and that just the realities of 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 trying to build a massive business compared to america for example here Um, whereas large companies can immediately benefit from the way startups work, and they can immediately build value based on what they're doing. So what are those immediate benefits that a Telstra or a Woolies might be? Because Woolies also has, what is it, the Startup Startup Fresh Fresh Fund? And what is the Startup Fresh Fund? Well, it's... I mean, just for our listeners, Woolworths is one of the two large supermarkets in Australia. So it's a supermarket chain that has a venture capital arm. Mm. Well, this is based around the John Lewis partnership and what they're doing in the UK on this. And um, I believe there's a few of the US uh, supermarkets are doing the same thing. So uh, this is classic. Um, incubator model that they're uh, coming along, uh, taking these businesses on, and um, and uh, trying to grow them in that in a couple of those specific segments that are around um, groceries, supply chain, those sort of areas. So, so, was, if, so, so was, if we have drone delivered groceries, it's probably going to be one of the start fresh startups that actually pioneered that for us. Mm. I think so. I mean, there's sort of there's three uh, mechanisms that we're seeing big companies. 
uh, triad. So one is, of course, start a venture fund, so like as Telstra Ventures has done, and invest in already growing gangbusters startups and 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 jump on that bandwagon. Um, another one is uh, we're seeing uh, large companies just start to partner much earlier on with startups. So we've seen Mondelez who do, you know, Cadbury's and Vegemite and things like that, start to partner with startups, starting to do sort of in-store analytics and various marketing campaigns, learning from what startups are doing uh, much earlier than they would have done in the past. And then right at the beginning, we're actually seeing people like Coca-Cola, instead of putting something out to tender to an enormous company like mm. SAP, actually going to startups and saying, if you built a product that did this, we'd become a customer. So go build the product. And I think that's very exciting for startups. It's also, and it's cheaper for Coke to do it, that too. It, it is. But I think, you know, I think we all accept that... Uh, that transaction, right? yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, you can, you know, I think we all know that there are lots of startups that say they're talking to Coca-Cola as a customer. To actually say I have a Coca-Cola as a customer takes you straight to the next big customer. There's an interesting thing happening in the corporate sector on this too. That because uh, I've just been up at the Gartner conference in uh, the Gold Coast. This is the big end of town, CIOs, IT managers, sort of thing, and there's a big concern in the corporate sector that the startups, these disruptive businesses that are coming through, are going to start eating their lunches. And there's also a recognition within these bigger companies too that the startups are attracting the smarter minds, that um, you're getting the bureaucrats in the in the big corporations. People the, who are risk averse. Risk averse, that's right. right. And the risk takers and um, the people who are the got the entrepreneurial streaks, these people are going over to the startups. It's become acceptable. And over the last 10 years. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. And when we're recording This Week in Startups Australia, both Felix and I take a lot of behind-the-scenes photos. We post those on our Tumblr, which is at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. And that's also where you'll find SoundCloud versions of our podcast. So check it out at twistartupsaus.tumblr.com. Welcome back to This Week in Startups Australia. We're joined this week by Phil Morrill and Paul Wallbank. And this week, I read a very interesting article on Startup Smart. It was called The Hard Truth About Startups in Australia by Michael Mehmet. And I'm going to quote you. Quote, the hard truth is Australia is not really very well set up for this whole startup thing to actually work for a number of reasons. The single most important of these reasons is one that I've mentioned. There's no money in it. The so-called seed investment in Australia is a lot like a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Now he goes on, Phil, and calls incubators work for the dole. There's a four damning words. And he accuses VCs of being made lazy by an oversupply of startups and basically ends up asking, why would you do this to yourself? Now, what do, what do you both think? Well, I think you know, the fundamental flaw in that statement is the assumption that people do it for the money. Mm. And I think if you drill down into any entrepreneur's motivation, they're doing it for the independence. They're doing it for the passion and the excitement they have around solving a certain kind of problem. At least they should be, because indeed, uh, we are not paid enough as entrepreneurs in our in our day jobs. So what we're effectively doing is we're 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 
accepting that we won't get as much money as we might have, but we're but we're in exchange for that, we're having the freedom to pursue building something that we want to build, um, and that's the difference. And I think a good entrepreneurial uh, sort of uh, environment, including incubators, um, should be set up to to make that possible. And more importantly, I think people should start their entrepreneurial journey for those reasons if we're if we're starting a journey as a startup to build the next twitter and of course no idea how we're going to make money but i'm going to be a startup guy and i'm going to start building a startup and it's going to be cool and one day i'll get paid millions of dollars that's all the wrong reasons it's all going to end badly Mm. And this is something that we really, really need to emphasise there is that uh, if you're going into the startup world, you're doing it because you've got a risk appetite. And uh, the, if you're doing it for the money, you may well end up like me after four startups, Stonebroke and a freelance writer, which is the last resort of the penniless scandal. Um, but, um, <laughs> but, uh, the, um, but this is what you've got to be prepared for, that uh, you have to have that risk appetite. And uh, I think on one level, we've got to understand too that um, startups, or for that matter, small business, and I don't want to conflate the two, but uh, there are some similarities in this, is that raising capital for small business around the world is hard. Um, and it doesn't matter whether you... This, I think sometimes we get this thing that the um, the, the Bay Area is the golden uh, place where every startup gets um, gets a million bucks, every child gets a prize, that sort of thing. Of course, it's not true. Most startups don't. Most startups wither on the vine. And this is one of the things that's global. Here in Australia, I think it's particularly tough. I think business in general, and even big business is undercapitalised and that's a bigger problem for the Aussie economy. And that's just a historical feature of the Australian economy. Oh, partly, but I think... I mean, unless you're a mine. Yeah, partly, although I think in the last 20 years this has accelerated. There's a lot of uh, capital-starved businesses, medium and large businesses, in the economy because uh, a lot of investment has gone into into property or into investing in the ASX8 through super funds, which we might get to in a minute. Mm. Yeah, I think that's the... There's a a sort of a conflict there, isn't it? Because I think think that... um, Entrepreneurs are actually more like artists than business people. Yeah, the same way that someone decides, well, I'm I'm happy not to make as much money as that banker because I'm an amazing guitarist, and what I love doing is going and playing in front of crowds and doing what I do. Same, you know, we we're, we're makers, we're builders, we're we're creators, and. Um, you know, you start a company because you want to build something. You'll take the financial uh, hit on that. But the challenge is you get to some point where you need to uh, capitalize that business just just for it to not, not, not even for you to survive, but for the business to, to go to the next level. And if we look to the U.S. as a, as a, as a market, we do see liquidity that actually helps even the, the worst startups, I think, mm-hmm. where even aqua hires are happening very early on and they're pulling things up the chain. And so there's money happening and the people are in the process of spending that money becoming better at what they do, which makes better companies. And there's a good cycle that so starts. Is that, is that the angelist effect? Is it the fact that they're getting syndicates of investors who can put in $5,000, but together become 200000 to help a business along? Well, that's right. And then those investors are also investing investing in things further up the food chain, which then they might mention they should have a look at that startup and acquire that startup that they also own. And then the whole thing just starts to kick in. All right. So, you know, that that's sort of your angel level. What happens, Paul, when we get to the A and B levels of funding? So if you're talking A and A level is probably what, one to three million dollars in Australia, B level five to ten million dollars. So sort of the funding level that, say, um, GoCatch got was a, sort of the equivalent of a B level, right around five million dollars. Mm. Now, the interesting thing is, because we had Ned Moorfield on the last show, and and one of the things that was very interesting that he said was that there's, 
he didn't go to the standard VC firms. In fact, there's actual institutional venture arms that had been funding mining ventures, and they get a lot of money, and they don't have any more mines to put it in. And so if you know how to get entry to those folks, then you actually have access. So the interesting thing is, is where we some ways think of Australia as being capital starved, are we as capital starved for A and B funding as we actually believe we are? It depends on the sector, and it's interesting you raise the mining industry there. A few a year or so back, I uh, did a story for Business Spectator on why aren't the super funds investing in startups? Mm. And I went to the super funds, I went to the fund managers and asked them, why aren't you investing? They came back saying, look, if you look at the mining industry with the junior miners, you go back 40 years, 50 years, the Poseidon boom, all of this, it was the Wild West in this country, and a lot of people did their dough. So what they did during the 80s and 90s was they built up a framework of investment into those junior miners, which legitimised them in front in front of the institutional investors, which means that that money was kicking around. What they're trying to do now is trying to get their heads around how they can apply that junior miner model, which is a high-risk model, and there's a lot of shonks out there in that sector, uh, how they can get that to work in the startup sector, which probably doesn't have as many shonks, uh, but has just as high risks as uh, trying to dig nickel out of the ground or whatever. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing lots of different... I mean, essentially what we're seeing now is people routing around the problem in the way that the internet does so <laughs> yeah, well. Exactly. So, we they, so, so what you're supposed to do is go to a venture capitalist and get your next round of capital. But in fact, because there's just not many options to actually do that, people have to do other things, be that go to America, go to Asia, or in fact, do something like a backdoor listing into a West Australian mining shell company uh, and float into into that business. And we're seeing more and more startups doing that. We're seeing the ASX getting interested in, in supporting startups, explore that option. Um, but, you know, it all just points to the fact that there is no clear path for, for founders to capitalise their business as it grows. But this is why I think what you just said, Paul, was so interesting. If, if the institutional investors are looking for a way to build a framework, how can the startup community, how can folks like you, Phil, help that happen to build the pipeway between what they need to feel safe and the capital that they're sitting on top of? Yeah, that's right. And I think that goes back to our very first conversation today. It's like, how do we help them understand what they're investing in how do we help them become masses of customers that support that thing that they've invested in you know there's a very very different dynamic and there's an educational process which is just as important as the regulations around it i think and also on top of that too we've we've got to remember with the investment scene in australia it's very highly regulated it's very much we've had we've discussion with uh, kickstarter and crowdfunding there that uh, uh, how that's been um, twisted if you like in australia because uh, some very very restrictive um, rules on this we've really got to get that um, comfort with the uh, legislative legislative uh, arms and uh, and with the investors themselves on yes this is an area where it is risky but there are rewards there and uh, maybe get that risk tolerance up a bit. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Mark Pesci. When I got the idea of starting the This Week in Startups Australia podcast, one of the first things I did was reach out to the folks that I know at Fishburners because they've always been incredibly supportive to anything that's going on in the startup community here in Sydney and in Australia. And that's not just helpful to me. It's been helpful to everyone in the community. Fishburners is a place that exists to help entrepreneurs be the best they can be. Find out more at fishburners.org. 
Welcome back to This Week in Startups Australia. I'm here with my guests, Phil Morrill and Paul Wallbank. So guys, Commercialization Australia, that arm that was had been created to kind of help startups get money, it's gone, it's kaput, it's dead. There's rumors that it's gonna be replaced by something else, but nothing's been officially announced yet. Does it matter? Well, I was thinking about the answer to this question, and one answer is, in the seven years that Polonizers existed, when we've founded you know tens of new companies, we haven't applied once to commercialization Australia. Does that answer your question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's, there's another angle on this, too. That um, And I had the brief stint working with the New South Wales government on their digital economy side. And uh, the problem with governments is that they've got ADD, that they right. will not focus on that. And this isn't stuff that, you know, having a three-year cycle or whatever it is, you've got to focus. For, I mean, we had the comic grants before that, and uh, those were all pulled off the table. Almost identical process with commercialization Australia. In fact, I know one guy who um, had his um, application for a comic grant pulled away, and then uh, five years later, exactly the same thing happens with a commercialization grant. So, yeah, this is... Um, governments, if they're going to make any difference in this, have got to focus, have got to commit to a 10-, 15-year time frame on this. And stuff. they've got to lockbox the funding so that yeah. people can understand that there's some level of guarantee about that. One of the things when I was with that state government, people would come to me all the time and say, can I get funding for XYZ? And I'd say, look, I can probably get you $15,000, worth of funding, which isn't a lot really under a state government grant, but the amount of grief you're going to go through acquitting that, I reckon you'd be better off driving a cab for six months and raising that 10000 bucks yourself. Um, And this did not win me friends, but I maintain that the amount of work in applying and running that uh, grant was just too much. As someone who went partway through the process of applying for Commercialization Australia grant, there's the stage one form and then there's the stage two form. The stage one form took me a day to fill out. And my prize for having passed through that was to get the stage two form, which it looked like was going to take the better part of a week. And this is when I was in the thick of things trying to ship product with Moore's Cloud. I couldn't take a week to fill this document. And as much as I thought, oh, we could use this money, we could use it to hire someone to do blah, 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 I couldn't take the time to do it. And, you know, some of that's bureaucracy. They need to have that paper trail because it's required by the regulation and all of that. But then the other thing is, is that a good fit to, you know, could I spend that week trying to raise money with investors or whatever it might be? I, the challenge I always had with commercialization Australia started on the first day when I remember being very excited that something called commercialization Australia was being launched. Mm. And uh, we met with some of the advisors at the time and they started asking us what our unique IP was in all the businesses. And we said, well, you know, we don't necessarily want the money for something with unique IP. We have we want something for a new business, which is going to make a lot of money if we can get a commercialization grant from the government. And 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 there was just such a focus on unique IP. It just so many things got it got just cast aside. And and I find that's a general issue with 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 government grants. They tend to look for something which has got a PhD guy in the background and patents and things like that. So something that's almost been spun out of Cyro or out of university. So it either either rules out most startups or even more troublingly, it creates this whole industry of advisors Mm -hmm. who become very, very good at helping you describe your company so that it's got something that's unique IP, which I just don't think is a positive 
uh, situation for an ecosystem. We should be able to say we have an amazing company. We think it can be a really big company. We need a little bit of help with marketing and talent to help us take that to the next level. Please help. All right. So if the government's going to moot something to replace commercialization Australia and we I gave both of you a magic wand, what would you fill that box with? I would um, go towards uh, reforming the um, capital raising rules and uh, yeah I would be looking at reforming the super I I think we just need to flatten the playing field not try and pick winners because uh, trying to build another Silicon Valley um, through government uh, funding this isn't going to happen and uh, trying to pick winners you look at Australia's success stories in the startup space um, very few of them have been you if you go back 15 years you wouldn't have picked companies like Big Commerce or Atlassian or whatever they'd um, uh, but these have come out of hard work by the founders, great ideas and... Uh, and great timing. And and unique um, unique business propositions, not unique IP. That's yeah. right. And I, I think what I'd love to see is something which isn't bureaucratically led. It's something that's led by by the market. And, and, you know, like in Singapore, you've actually got models which are matching what angel investors are independently deciding to risk with their own money. I mean, I think that you can't get a better measure of um, opportunity uh, than looking at what an individual is decided to do with their own money and the risk that they're prepared to take. I, I think a bureaucrat in the government's always going to make a different decision. Absolutely. So essentially, I could go and show them my cap table and say, here, I need you to match this, is yeah, what, what that's you're right. saying. Yeah. I mean, I think if you've got a, you know, in venture capital terms, you would want the government to follow but never lead yes. the capital raising. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it sounds like between the three of us, we've sort of solved all the major problems in the venture <laughs> capital landscape here. We figured out how to fund the companies, how to educate investors, how to educate the founders, what the founders should be doing. Done pretty good, but I want to close with one really good question that looks more to the future than to the present. So, Phil, you've pointed us at a report from... Akamai. Akamai. What do they have to say? So what Akamai have observed is is, is an enormous amount of traffic starting to come out of Asia Pacific uh, around the Internet of Things. And, you know, we know that the trends that are that are upon us now are showing that, you know, where where the same way that mobile phones and tablets are dominating what used to be PCs right. connecting to the Internet. Now, things are, are sort of 10xing that now so do they have that you know, broken out is that is that a bunch of thermostats or is that m to m or do we know really well it's anything well what's really driving this is out of the prc out of china um because <laughs> the chinese are really paranoid now about food security that right. whole uh, melanin in yes. baby powder um, baby milk uh, really focus their minds on this so what they're looking at doing is they're looking at locking down the entire supply chain as one one guy said to me um that what they're hoping to to do isn't just to figure out that this milk came from Daisy the cow, but what time, what the humidity was, what was the name of the guy that put the suction caps on the udders, uh, right down to that level. I said to him, "You reckon? Do you reckon that's feasible?" He said, "Yep, we can do this." It's really interesting with this because this is an opportunity for Australia if we're quick to jump on this and really get behind the Chinese and get that food chain. I was actually quite disappointed that the when all this talk about the free trade agreement with China that's just been signed last week, uh, that there wasn't more 
on this front that uh, there's an opportunity for really savvy entrepreneurs. There were a couple in uh, Muru D, I think, um, in the agricultural space. And um, this is the sort of area where we can hit some really good runs for some savvy entrepreneurs. Yeah, I mean, I think think it's even just setting the agenda Mm. we should do here in Australia. I think one one of my observations is that in Australia, we're still making um, um, clones of, you know, cool things that we read on TechCrunch and the like. Mm-hmm. Instead of making uniquely awesome uh, businesses which solve real problems, I think this area is 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 completely untapped. It's it's a blank canvas. It's all just about to happen. There's lots of people around this ecosystem who are motivated for it to be successful. Mm-hmm. For example, Intel, who yes. missed the mobile boom, have Whoops. made absolutely. new chips, which are absolutely you know low voltage device you know chips for devices. Uh, and there's a big opportunity for us to make the software that drives that. We need to understand it more and work together. And on top of that, too, I mean, we're seeing this with the telcos, for instance, uh, that uh, they're conscious that this is going to be their next big revenue stream. Right. Uh, now that, voice that it's and services, de- services, services. Exactly. So, um, again, for those those canny startups, going to partner with those bigger companies, the Telstras, the Optuses, the Cisco's, the Intel's, and so on, this is where uh, they're probably going to get, um, when they go knocking at the door, they're probably going to be welcomed. And take some- you know, take, let's let's take something like Singtel as a really exciting sort of opportunity for Internet of Things. You've got a you've got a, a, a an island of people who are all connected. Um, you've got a telco which completely owns the whole spot, who are putting sensors everywhere. Mm-hmm. And it you know, arguably, this is a telco that that once sold connections through copper wires will soon be connecting. You know, will be will be selling API connectivity to the objects in the city. Uh, with, that lots of other startups will sit on top of. So I think the the but the challenge is how do you how do you create an ecosystem which is, which I think is happening more in the Asia part of Asia Pacific than in the Pacific part of Asia <laughs> Pacific yeah. uh, for for founders without you know large capital reserves to build the things that sit on top. So Moore's Cloud, for example, like what's what's the what what's what's a better world that Moore's Cloud could sit on that would just be more natural to people? Because of course you should be able to control the light in your house and all those things. Um, and and that's what I think uh, we should all work together on more as a community, and in, and especially things like local governments and cities. I think. I mean, I think there's a there's an agenda that the city of Sydney could set up, which would hyper connect. Sydney into an Internet of Things pretty quickly. Funnily enough, someone in this room has recommended exactly that to the city of Sydney. (laughs) I I mean, um, I interviewed the uh, Deputy Mayor of Barcelona last year on this because they're doing this in Barcelona as well. And so there's a real... And I've spoken to the city of Sydney about this too. And, uh, yeah, this this is stuff that's really focusing their minds. Right. And I didn't know that, by the way, before I... (laughs) We know, but when they they stress themselves as a connected city, Mm. they mean connecting it with roads... And I came in and said, actually, think about connecting all of the people and all of the things that are in the city as a seamless whole so that people can understand and work with all of the resources. Because you don't get to a collaborative sharing city unless everything is connected. And well, this I've is got- why it's interesting watching what they're trying to do up in Newcastle with the Kuma project there. So um, in Derby Street, uh, it's a small privately, no support from the local government, no support from the state government, but they're doing it privately. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I frequently quote you, actually, Mark. You'll be, you'll be happy to hear around instead of things because you said once around Moore's Cloud that people need to understand that in the not too distant future, there's going to be a hundred connected devices in any one home, and I think that's the kind of debate as a, as a nation we need to be having rather than it'll be amazing when we've got fast internet because just think how quickly you can download a movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right, gentlemen, thank you very much. Let me thank Phil Moore. Let me thank Paul Wallbank. Thank you, Mark. Thanks and for having us. And thank you for appearing on This Week in Startups Australia. Well, that's about it for this episode. It feels like we've really been able to drill down to some core issues confronting startups in Australia. And here's hoping that we get to work our way to some solutions. Once again, big thanks to Murray Herps and Fishburners for their support. To Felix Warmoth and AnalogCabin.net for their most excellent audio production. Thanks to Paul Wallbank, Phil Morrill, and Raina Lee Shannon for bringing intelligence and clarity to some of the most difficult issues facing startups in Australia. I'll speak to you again in a fortnight. It'll be our final episode of 2014 with a holiday theme. For now, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia. <laughs>